In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was wild and desolate. And darkness was over the face of the deep. Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to the Redeeming the Time podcast. We're back. All right, so listen up, guys. We've only got a few episodes left. Today, we're doing The Light. On our next episode, we're going to be talking about the seven I am statements, well, the 14 I am statements of Jesus in John. And on our last episode, we will be doing all the different titles that different people assign to Jesus throughout the entire book of John. All this to say, we are in the home stretch here. And we're getting close to Christmas. So if you're anything like my family, Thanksgiving night, your extended family has left the house, and boom, instantaneous Christmas. My sister and I looked each other dead in the eyes and were like, it's time. And then boom, all of a sudden, in like 10 minutes, this place had been totally pit crewed into Christmas. It was fantastic. We got lights up top. We got lights running around our cabinets. We got lights running through the dining room. We've got lights, 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 lights. I think we put our tree up that night. It was just, <laughs> my house is, you flip all the lights off and everything is just boom. It's glowing with lights. It's fantastic. There's no time of year like Christmas for the light. And there's just something super cool about the lights, you know? Uh, the, the way they shine, the way they glisten, uh, especially, you know, in the ice, it's mimicking the way that light glimmers off of ice, which is just, it's super cool, you know, the tinsel on the tree that floats around in your house for, like, a year. You, you do a big spring clean out, and you, like, find it under the couch and everywhere else. The tinsel, tinsel's great, and the way that shines, all the lights, all the lights. You're noticing a pattern of me keep saying lights. I just won't shut up about the lights, and neither will the book of John, which is why I won't shut up about light. There is a pattern. When you read in John, as you continually read through the book, and you're looking for these patterns, which is what I did, light comes up 
a lot at a few key places too. Uh, the story of Nicodemus. I don't think we've really talked about Nicodemus too much. The story of Nicodemus. Light plays a critical role right there. Uh, just after Jesus is talking to the adulteress, just after Jesus is talking to the adulteress, he talks more about light and continues it with whatever he was saying before the whole adulteress account. Uh, and then right in the beginning of the book, you read in John chapter one, and it's talking about the word and the light that came to men and the light shine and the darkness didn't comprehend it, but people didn't like the light. And what does it all mean? It's really kind of cryptic when you first look at it. And so I didn't really know what to do with it. And I think that's why this episode has taken a long time to produce that and the intro, just trying to get uh, something presentable together. Like, how do I explain this theme? Because it's really complicated. And so I found a uh, short little article that I'll be linking in this uh, in this podcast description, uh, which is just a little um, a little introduction into the light metaphors. Uh, did I mention this introduction is like eighty pages long? Yeah, my understanding of this article is that it was a uh, a master's thesis presented by a guy named Scott Davis at uh, Virginia Tech way back in two thousand. And this thing is super long. I've got this thing saved as a giant PDF on my computer and. Goodness, is it a read? When you've got a table of contents on an article, you know it's good. Uh, and sure, it's not even, it's chapters. I've never seen an article broken into chapters. Sections, yes. Chapters, no. Uh, so this thing's pretty intense. And it's basically just an introduction into a bunch of little themes. He looks at a bunch of different scholars and all kinds of different uh, information in the Old Testament, New Testament. He's got uh, tables and just so many different metaphors that all stem out of light. And so what does it mean? Well, we're going to take a look at that, and we're going to start in the Old Testament. So the book of John was written to first century Jews. That's the assigned culture that John was able to make assumptions about as he's writing his book. One of the assumptions that he can make is that these people he's writing to have a thorough knowledge of the Old Testament. You can't read the New Testament without a thorough knowledge of the Old Testament. For this very reason, the New Testament authors are expecting that its readers are Jews primarily, who are very familiar with Old Testament texts, and only in a couple occasions that I can't even recall necessarily, uh, like some of the Pauline epistles are not written to Jews, and it shows because he specifically uses less things, like in, in Acts, uh, when John, not John, when uh, Paul preaches to. Um, believe it's the people in Athens. I think we talked about that in the politics episode. And he preaches about the the unnamed God, and he's talking about their culture, and there's almost no reference to any of the Old Testament literature, because he's not assuming that they're going to know anything about it, nor that they have any respect for it. And so he has to kind of explain Jesus uh, from ground zero. But in most cases in the Bible, we have to understand the Old Testament in order to understand the New Testament. And so I think for the first time in this series, maybe the second time, we're actually going to stop and really take a good look at uh, some of the key moments uh, where light is part of the story in the Old Testament so that we can understand what John is riffing off of in the New Testament when he's talking about uh, uh, when he's talking about Jesus as the light. So it's off to the races and here we go. So, 
to talk about just how crucial light is in the Old Testament, uh, it probably is best to just mention that it's the first thing created. Our very first entry in the entire Bible, in Genesis chapter 1, talks about light primarily. All right, so let's read that passage. Just a total curveball. You know what drives me nuts? Introductions in Bibles. Because I always want to turn to Genesis 1, and I can't because I've got this preface, and I can never remember how long the preface is. And so I open it and just trying to hit Genesis 1, and I'm in like Exodus. It's ridiculous. I just want to turn to page 1 and have Genesis right there. Throw your introduction at the end with all the maps or something. I don't know. Of course, then we'd have a problem getting to Revelation. Just don't talk in your Bible. Just put the verses in it. How about, how about that? All right. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. I've grown to hate that. Tim Mackey has ruined that verse for me. And darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Verse 3, Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, so the evening and morning were the first day. I think the best way I have ever heard the creation story told is discussing how God created order from disorder. So I mentioned right there how Tim Mackey has ruined that voice for me, he, uh, that verse for me, because formless and void or formless and empty, uh, that's how I always grew up hearing it. We don't translate that phrase. It's in a few other places in the Bible, uh, typically referring to a desert. And so uh, Tim has translated that for me. I think this is what I used in the uh, the introduction. Wild and waste. He says it kind of preserves the rhyme in, in Hebrew. I think it's tohu vavohu. So he says, wild and waste kind of pre uh, preserves the rhyme a little bit and kind of gets the idea across that it's barren and chaotic. We think of like floating watery space blob when we read this verse. Not what it is. We're talking about chaos here. It's a world, but it's desolate and it's wild. It's chaotic. And so this whole creation process is then God taking the chaos and turning it into order. And what's the first order in order? It's light. The first thing that God does is create light. And there's a very strong, it's distinguished in the darkness. Uh, so God creates the light and then separates it from the darkness. And then, of course, it's not explained here, but the assumption is, you know, time is now passing because light and day mark the passing of time. And so the most fundamental part of the universe from the perspective of Genesis 1 is that the time is now passing as marked by night and day. That cycle of night and day is the rhythm of the universe, or at least the rhythm of Earth, which makes sense. Out of anything you can count on on Earth, you can't count on the weather. Animals are unpredictable, plants are unpredictable, weather's unpredictable. But night and day, you can pretty reasonably pre uh, predict that. As well as, you know, the movements of the stars and whatnot, which he hasn't created yet. That's on day four, but... Uh, right here, right from the very beginning, light is important. So it's an essential part of creation. It's part of order. Light has become associated with order, especially the way it's distinguished from darkness. You picture that dividing line, peeling away light from darkness. So there's a strong line in between the two. That's not the only thing that light does, though. Light isn't just an essential life-giving part of creation, because it, it is indeed life-giving as well when you think about the plants and so on and so forth. It's also representative of the presence of God. 
So I'm just going to stop right here. A uh, couple, this would have been like a year and a half, two years ago, I took a class on world religions. And in this class, uh, something we spent a good amount of time talking about was light. Because light is like this strange, universal human metaphor. And so it's present in just about every religion on the planet uses uh, light in some form or another. Like, right down, Judaism has the menorah, which we don't really use a lot in Christianity. But around Christmas time, we have the star and the, you know, the, light, of, uh, the light of the star. I only know this from the movies, but I get the, the vibe that uh, Catholic temples and cathedrals and stuff tend to have uh, a lot of candles. And I'm sure that has some sort of uh, symbolic meaning to it, as most uh, most Catholic traditions do, by my understanding. It's just light. Light is just an important part of our existence. And so it's become representative of a handful of things, uh, including enlightenment and light and meant the act of making something brighter and therefore something that we can know. It's present fairly early on in Scripture, too, even beyond uh, Genesis here. When we first see God come into the scene uh, in Genesis here, he's depicted as spirit and breath and voice. Uh, this is the terminology you'll see about God in the early chapters of Genesis. But then you'll find him again with a new form in Exodus. I don't suppose you can guess where this is going. You're correct. He takes on the form of sound waves. No, he takes on the form of light. I'm not going to stop and read this account, but in Exodus, the Shekinah glory, you've heard that probably before, at least you're aware of what it is, I would assume. Uh, the Shekinah glory is the, the cloud and the fire uh, that hovers over the tabernacle and shows the people where to go. And then in Exodus 34, we see that Moses, uh, he sees, uh, he has this experience with God on the mountain. He comes down and he's got a shining face for weeks. It's ridiculous. He's literally glowing. What does that say? Well, it says something about the divine. When you think about it, he's been around this holy glowing presence and he starts glowing too. It's like it's rubbed off on him. And so not only is our light metaphor uh, now referring to the order of creation, but it's also referring to, very vividly, the presence of God himself, where we can see it almost like a, like a mark on Moses after he's spent a significant amount of time with the Lord on the mountain. Here's another thing you're probably very familiar with, and this is these are just examples of common uh, metaphors that we see in light. Another example that I'm sure you're familiar with is in Psalm 119.105. I, so, I was so proud of myself when I uh, was making these notes. I actually remembered the reference for this verse uh, right down to the number, uh, the verse number, which when talking about Psalm 119, which is stupidly long, uh, is quite the feat. But light shows us the way. Psalm 119.105 says that your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. Well, what do you mean by that? Obviously, he's using a metaphor here that something about the word of God guides him and makes things clear in the same way in the middle of the night. If you're walking around, you get like a flashlight or something so you can see where you're going. You don't want to trip and fall. Enlightenment and knowledge and the wisdom of the word of God is now being paired to the metaphor of light. So light is also literally just this illumination, this thing that gives us knowledge and wisdom and lets us move forward. It shows us our path. But recall in Genesis 1 that we had a very strong distinction between light and darkness. So if these are our metaphors for light, 
that light is an essential part of order. It's part of creation. It brings life. And it's just part of the system that makes everything work and come together. Light is the presence of God, like above the tabernacle and shining, bouncing off the face of Moses. And light gives us a way to to see the way. It's literally like phrases like illuminating and enlightenment, which are both just straight up metaphors in a single word for light. But what about the darkness? Now, this is something really interesting that you're going to like. Well, I think. I'm a Bible geek, so I like it. If you turn to the book of Jeremiah and look in right early on in chapter 4, verses, uh, verse 23 beginning, Jeremiah paints a very interesting picture, especially if you are a uh, 5th century BC Jew, uh, off the top of my head, that's about when this was written, who's very familiar with Genesis and the creation narrative. So check this out. Jeremiah 4.23. I beheld the earth, and indeed it was without form and void, or tohu vavohu. And the heavens, they had no light. I beheld the mountains, and indeed they trembled, and the hills moved back and forth. I beheld, and indeed there was no man, and all the birds of the heavens had fled. I beheld, and indeed the fruitful land was a wilderness, and all its cities were broken down at the presence of the Lord by his fierce anger. What's Jeremiah talking about there? He's talking about the uncreated world. It's like things are going in reverse. There's no light. There's no man. There's no fruit. Earth has gone back to formless and empty, formless and void, tohu vavohu, wild and waste. So we can assume that light and darkness are these these opposites. They have these opposite metaphors here. To live in light is to live in the beautiful creation, and to live in darkness is to live in the, the chaos of before, the tohu vavohu. And what Jeremiah is talking about here seems to be, uh, if I'm correct, the exile, the Babylonians, and taking over Jerusalem. He's talking about the laying of waste of the land of Jerusalem to be uh, or the land of Israel, to be very similar to, like, an uncreated world. It's a very dramatic way to talk about this destruction. It's destruction so great, it's almost as if the entire world has returned back to its uncreated state. But Isaiah, the prophet uh, who comes right before him as far as um, the Bible is concerned, but chronologically, I believe, it's after, uh, Isaiah offers hope. So, like, in a few passages we'll stop in, uh, Isaiah offers the hope of light to the people of Israel. So let's try uh, Isaiah 42:16. This passage is a promise that God is going to help Israel. And what does it say? How does it define this help? Well, it says in Isaiah 42:16, "I will bring the blind by a way they did not know. I will lead them in paths that they have not known. I will make darkness light before them. I will make darkness into light." And crooked places will be made straight. These things I will do for them and not forsake them. It's a promise. Like the classic Jeremiah 29.11 that everybody likes to rip out of context. That uh, For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to not harm you. Yeah, everybody likes that. You know, put it on a tattoo. But this verse uses light. It says there are people who are blind who will be guided. Things will be made from their darkness and into light. That's hope. Hope is the promise. The promise is hope. Or if you keep reading in Isaiah to like chapter 60. Fun fact about this, literally just after I was in here making my notes in Isaiah 60, I was asked a question by a buddy who I might want to get on the show sometime. Uh, he was, we were discussing Israel and how do modern Jews think they can attain salvation? 
And I, I looked it up, just a quick little Google search, because I realized I actually have no idea. I took that world religions class, but uh, from an unbiased and uh, not involved professor. I mean, he's religious himself, but, uh, you know, he's trying to take a fair look at it from the outside. So we're not wrestling with the big questions of Judaism. And the big questions of Judaism is how does how do they come out of their Old Testament not thinking they need a savior? How do they expect to attain salvation if not by Jesus. And in this article that I read, it was just, it was horrible, horrible theology, a terrible way to read the Bible, uh, explaining Isaiah 60 somehow that people can be good, and Isaiah 60 explains that. No, 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 this is a promise of the future that we're reading in Isaiah 60. It's part of the future hope. We'll just skim over a few verses in the chapter. So starting, Isaiah 60, verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord is risen upon you, for behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people. But the Lord will arise over you, and his glory will be seen among you. The Gentiles shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising, like the sun. It's pretty cool. Lift up your eyes all around and see, they shall all gather together. They come to you, your sun shall come from afar. I just lost my screen. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughter shall be nursed at your side. Then you shall see and become radiant, and your heart shall swell with joy, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. And this thing keeps going. So it's beautiful poetry, just for one. I'm sure it's even more beautiful in Hebrew. But talking about like the sun, the very radiance of the sun, and the glory of God glowing. And then skip down to verse uh, 19 through the rest of the chapter. The sun shall no longer be your light by day. Nor for brightness shall the moon give light to you, but the Lord will be an everlasting light, and God be your glory. Your sun shall no longer go down, nor shall your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord shall be everlasting light. And the days of your mourning shall be ended. That's mourning as in like sadness, mourning. And your people shall all be righteous. They shall inherit the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. A little one shall become a thousand, and a small one become a strong nation. I, the Lord, will hasten it in its time. So what Isaiah is talking about is a time when we don't even need the sun, moon, and stars anymore. We're just going to have the literal glowing glory of God, the awesome. This is the, the promise that Isaiah is heralding. And this is all, I should mention, in the passages talking about the suffering servant, like in Isaiah 53, which you'll probably hear around this time of year, you know, Christmas and whatnot. This is the passages, or these are the passages about the suffering servant. And this is light. This is the promise that Isaiah is giving. And it comes to its fruition when we get to different passages in the New Testament, with John in particular. So you keep reading the gospel accounts, and you make it to, say, like Matthew chapter 2, and you see this star, and the star has been theorized in articles I've read before, uh, to be the Shekinah glory of God, the, the star that led the wise men to Jesus at his birth might have just been the glory. But again, we're seeing this a light metaphor. It's like every movie and cartoon and just picture ever of this star has this star shining right on Jesus. 
again, just right there, there's something significant about that imagery of light heralding something new and special, like a spotlight shining on the special thing that you're supposed to focus on. And then we get to John, and we open up to the first pages of John, and it's just full of light, so much light references. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing that was made was made. Okay, so we're getting some strong Genesis vibes. We're already thinking about creation, and the first part of creation, this pre-light darkness, this Word is with God. In him was life, and life was the light of men. Ooh, we're getting into light now. Just like we expected by seeing this mirroring of the Genesis narrative. And the light shined in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light that was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. Holy moly, that was just a whole bunch of light references. What is this about? Well, we're riffing off of a few different parts of our light metaphor here. So first of all is the divinity. We're seeing that. We're seeing this uh, essential part of creation and life. You know, you think about a plant. I was learning in school uh, lately in my biology class uh, about producers and primary consumers, secondary consumers. And the entire ecosystem of Earth revolves around plants and other creatures that can absorb sunlight. Energy has to hit Earth from the sun. The light is literally what's fueling Earth, and everything else runs off of that. You've got, you know, the, the deer that eats the plant, and then the uh, wolf or whatever that eats the deer, and so on and so forth. But that energy came from the sun in uh, some form and was transformed into the energy that literally feeds our entire planet. So light is super important for life. And John basically just clearly states that here. The life of men is light. This word was not only light, but the same, the creation that created life in the first place. And this life, life light, life light. I like that. Just the term life light. Any other fellow nerds out there will know that was this, this Super Smash Brothers ultimate theme song. It's called Life Light. And I suddenly have a new appreciation for that name because that's what this is. In John 1, we're seeing life light. This life light came to earth and against all common sense was completely rejected for some reason. Why would we reject that? It's like, why would we put up a curtain so that the sun can't shine on earth anymore? Making a giant space veil that we don't see the sun. Well, that's going to kill us pretty quickly, don't you think? So we're seeing the divinity. We're seeing the illumination part, the, the knowledge and wisdom illumination part in here of coming to light men and their hearts and whatnot. And we're seeing the life and light of creation all right here in this passage. So right from the beginning of the book, John is making claims about how Jesus fits into creation, about his identity as God, which of course is the whole book, and about how Jesus came to literally just make things known. It's like shining a light in a dark room. Boom, all of a sudden we know things. Information we didn't have, something that was unclear, something that was chaotic, has become known and clear and easy to understand because of light. And that's what Jesus came to do. He shined light and gave us knowledge and wisdom that we wouldn't have had without him. As we get to John chapter 3, though, we start to see a new metaphor. So he's uh, Jesus is talking with a guy named Nicodemus, uh, who's a fun character. 
uh, Nicodemus sneaks around in the middle of the night to go meet with Jesus because he doesn't want to get caught by other people who are kind of starting to not like Jesus so much. But Nicodemus wants to hear it on his own. So he meets with Jesus and they chat. And it's this conversation that we get John 3.16 uh, talking about salvation because the conversation at one point with uh, Jesus and Nicodemus turns to salvation. And so just after John 3.16, if we pick up in like verse 18 here, uh, we're going to start to see Jesus bring a new metaphor for light in here. And this is a metaphor that's in the Old Testament. I didn't stop on it, but it's here. John 3.18. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light, but does not come into the light, lest his deeds be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done by God. And so in this passage, we see light as the purifying act of salvation. So light has come to the world, and mankind was given this option to come to it or to not. Again, we saw this in John chapter 1 already, too. Are we going to be part of the light or not? And... What Jesus is painting a picture here for is that it's almost like it's painful to enter the light because you enter the light and all of a sudden all the darkness in your life is burned away. And as naturally not so great people, we've kind of grown accustomed to the darkness and we like the darkness because it means that we can hide the parts of us that we don't like. And Jesus referring to himself as coming in as this light is this act of salvation, but it's almost like it comes at a cost. It comes at the cost of revelation of the parts of you that you're not comfortable with being shown out for yourself to acknowledge and for other people to acknowledge. You can't hide it from yourself anymore. You can't hide it from other people. It's all come into the light. Very, very basic metaphor of light right there, like in the news. New details have come to light. Come into the light. This is what Jesus is referring to here. And again, I'm going very fast through this, but this is the basic idea so I can get to you the main point. In John 8, Jesus just comes right out and says, I am the light of the world. This is in 8.12. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but just have the light of life. He's just straight up making a claim. All of these metaphors we've got going on here, he's just straight up claiming it. And this is after he's claiming to be a wellspring of water and giving life. He's, he's on a roll right here. And then our last stop here is in John 12. And in verse 35 of uh, chapter 12, Jesus says this, A little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. This is just, he's, he's offering this to the disciples, to walk in his own wisdom, and his own purifying power, and in his life, in the life-giving power of light. And then lastly, in verse 46, I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. So Jesus, again, making a claim of himself, who he is, what he's here to do, riffing off of all this metaphorical language, all right? So this claim, this claim that Jesus has been making repeatedly here is absolutely astonishing when you actually think about it. If you're thinking about this with our first century Jewish lens on, this is a massive, massive claim. So he's claiming to be the servant, the servant of Isaiah 53 and of Isaiah 60, the suffering servant. By using that part of light, he's this light that's coming, the promise to push away this uncreated darkness of the world 
and to bring it back to its full Eden ideal. He's claimed to be the agent of salvation, the purifying light that comes to shine and to, to put away the darkness and the shadows that we, we creep into that slowly kill us. He's the light that burns away the darkness and evil to restore this order to this dark and uncreated world. He's simultaneously claiming to be the source of life, the source of knowledge and wisdom, and the presence of God on earth, and he lives up to all of those claims, which is crazy, but he does. He's riffing off of all this Old Testament language that the, that the Jews were f- very familiar with. So that leaves a question which John is asking you and me and anybody else who reads this story. Will you abide in the light or will you abide in the darkness? Are you going to put up the Christmas lights? Man, this is a great metaphor. You know how I mentioned that my house is covered in Christmas lights? Well, we have these cabinets that go, but they don't go all the way up to the ceiling. There's like Oh, I don't know, eight inches of space between the top of the cabinets and the ceiling? No, maybe even more, maybe like a foot. And we put up the, the same, like, string lights that you put up on, on your tree or on the outside of your house, wherever you put those uh, stringed lights. And we put them up there with some garland. And the first thing we notice whenever we plug them in is all of a sudden where it's kind of dark up there all the time. There's just cobwebs everywhere. Absolutely. It's like, oh my goodness, we need to clean up here. It's so dusty. There's cobwebs. The stuff we couldn't see before has suddenly just come into light. And yet, every year, knowing that we're about to shine the light on all the dust and cobwebs and crap in our house, we still put the Christmas lights up anyway. So are you going to make that decision in your own life? Knowing that if you put the lights up, you put up the Christmas lights, what's going to happen is you're going to suddenly start to notice all the crap. Is that a price you're willing to pay? That's the question that's being asked by this pattern of light. Now we have the information of who Jesus is and what he's playing off of with the Old Testament, but are you going to change off of it? Are you going to embrace the light or are you going to hide from it? And of course, if you hide from it, you'll never have that opportunity to have those beautiful, sparkling, shining lights up there. You just have to do a little cleaning for it. Of course, it's not as easy in our own life to clean up as easy as it is to clean up a cobweb. It takes like 10 seconds. But your own life you can't clean up in 10 seconds. So are you willing to step into the light and have your own faults and failures in the light of day? Uh, That's a big, big question. Are you willing to stop pretending that everything's all right, you've got it all together? Uh, Can you humble yourself like that? To, To make known to other people that you do not have it together. You're messed up. I know you are. I know you are. I know you wrestle with stuff. Maybe everyone around you is comfortable pretending that everything's all right for them and pretending that everything's all right with you. I small talk like a million people a day. And it's the same conversation with everybody. Hey, how you doing? Doing good. How are you? Oh, I'm doing good too. Nobody has ever in the history of the universe turned been like, you know, I'm actually doing poorly to their barista. (laughs) I mean, sometimes people find a way to complain about the weather and stuff and no one's like, you know, actually, I've been really struggling with my alcoholism lately. Like nobody ever has said that. We're all just totally comfortable pretending that we're all doing good. Are you really? Will you be that uncommon person who pushes that boundary and says, I'm willing to step into the light and reveal all the terrible parts of myself, the parts where I'm struggling, the parts where I'm not doing so hot, in hopes that by bringing it into the light, those things will be burned away instead of festering in darkness where I can hide them, but they grow like mold. You can hide the mold by keeping the windows shut, but if you open it up, let it all die. So I would assume that because you're listening to this show, Redeeming the Time, (laughs) that you 
who want to know how to spend your time wisely and biblically and live your Christian life to the to the fullest. We're going to spend a lot of time in our next series. Once we finish John, the next series is going to be the kingdom. I'm so pumped for this. Uh, I really, I want to get this John thing settled. I want to make this very clear and I want to rush it here because John's question of who Jesus is, is really important to wrestle with before we can move on because we have to have that, that starting point so we can get to the kingdom. And the kingdom is where I'm really, really excited to start talking about stuff. So we're going to talk about those practical things. And the kingdom lessons are going to be super, super, super practical, which I'm excited for because that's right in line with the mission statement of the show. But right now, right now we have to acknowledge that none of that kingdom stuff is going to work for you unless first you're able to be empowered by the light. Because if you're continually trying to shine light in the dark places of the world while you yourself are hiding from it so that you can keep your own issues in the dark, it's not going to work. I don't know if you've ever tried to, like, clean a car, you know, I mean, like, soap, bucket, sponge, rag, whatever, and, like, a hose. You try to clean your car like that and not get wet, it's not possible. At some point, you're sitting there, you're, even if it's the very last step, you do the whole thing and only your hands get wet from the rag or whatever. You're just putting that mist layer on to make sure that the droplets don't dry on and leave, like, a hard water stains on the glass you just cleaned, and... What happens, the wind just blows just right, and all of a sudden, this mist that you're spraying on your car just blows right in your face. Suddenly, you're soaked, you're cold, you're freezing because the wind's blowing. It's terrible. It is not possible to wash your car without getting wet. It just, it happens. And if you're out there trying to shine light into the darkness while you yourself are harboring your own darkness, what's going to happen? It's not going to work. You're either, you're going to be doing it really, like, pathetically. You're going to just, you know little bit of hose, oh, don't want to get wet, no splashing, no water. When really, if you want to get the job done right, you're soaked, you're in it. You're practically covered in the soap water that you're washing your car in. You're just throwing that rag around, you're splashing yourself in the face. Definitely aiming your hose at anyone who gets too close to your car, it's amazing. Everybody knows to keep their distance from the guy with the hose because he will spray you. You're just, you're having a good time in the light. And you have to just admit the fact that your clothes are going to be wet and it's going to hurt a little bit. That's what it is to shine light in the darkness, is to acknowledge the fact that your own darknesses are going to sting in the light. And so none of that kingdom stuff is going to work unless you're willing to be in the light yourself. And that's why it's important to have these conversations now and to wrestle with these problems now. So my advice for you, as opposed to just sitting there and hiding in your own darkness and hoping that nobody notices, is to just get out there. Let those weaknesses in your life just be burned away, cooked away to a crisp till they fall off by the powerful, life-giving light of the sun. And when I say sun there, I'm talking about a capital S and an O. I think the church would do so much better if we were all people who were willing to live in the light instead of the darkness. That is all the time that we have for today's episode of the Redeeming the Time podcast. Like I said, we've only got two more episodes left. I will not be doing a Christmas episode. However, I will be putting up redeemingthetime.online slash articles. I don't have a slug for this, but if you go to the articles page, uh, which is at redeemingthetime.online slash articles, I will be putting my Christmas article from last year up there. Now, mind you, Redeeming the Time did not exist last year. 
Uh, but I did have a Facebook ministry at the time, and so I was posting articles there. I will be posting that uh, fresh to the uh, to the page here. And that was actually a pretty fun one to write because I was talking about uh, Christmas and I just forgot what was the point. Oh, I was talking about the real meaning of Christmas, which like we talk about the real meaning of Christmas all the time. And the Christians know when they're watching the movie and they say the real meaning of Christmas is family. And you're like, okay, but no, it isn't. It's actually Jesus. But then we actually get into the book and we don't really know why Christmas is important in comparison to the rest of it. Like whether or not we celebrated his actual birth birthday or not isn't important because his birth is just about what he did later. Like, his birth has nothing really all that crazy except it's a cool story. So what's the point? Well, I believe I found, when I was reading that, I found a major theme in all the stories about Jesus' birth, about how Jesus was being missed by all the people who should have known him, which I find has a striking, absolutely remarkable amount of relevance to today's Christian audience, which is totally, I mean, we're just crazy around Christmas time. We've got so much to do, and we're so consumed with Christmas that we almost miss the point of Christmas, which is exactly what was going on in the original Christmas. So that's just, I found that article really fun to write. I'm going to make it pretty again, go through, revise it a little bit, and put it up on the site. So there will not be a Christmas episode, but there'll be that uh, definitely to check out. Go check out the Twitter. That's where you're going to see all the behind the scenes and some content of me making those weird sound effects that you heard. Uh, I did all the sound effects that you heard in this episode. Uh, that intro uh, is a lot of fun. If you slow things down, it's actually really cool. Like uh, in my preliminary right now, uh, my the sound of crushing earth is just me crinkling some plastic and then playing it back at like 15% speed uh, with some added bass and uh, maybe we'll throw some other sound effects in there, but it's pretty cool. So, uh, you want to see the behind the scenes of me doing weird things like that and learning how to do that, you can see different clips like that on the Redeeming the Time Twitter, which is at Time Redeeming. Uh, I believe the URL is just twitter.com slash time redeeming. Uh, so check that out and uh, get some of those behind the scenes. I'd love to see more of the following head over to Twitter, as well as your regular updates whenever there's a new episode. In the meantime... I may or may not have a new episode before Christmas, but I will wish you one right now. Merry Christmas, guys. This has been Redeeming the Time. We'll see you soon. We're talking about I Am next, which is epic.